0: If you don't know me. My name's uh, Peter Milliken, and I'm one of the the pastors here at the church. I uh, want to show you this uh, this medal here that I that I received last year. Uh, this this medal represents an achievement of mine. It says uh, Football Queensland FQPL Three Darling Downs Grand Final Winners Men's 2022. And uh, this is a medal that I received for winning uh, the uh, the Toowoomba Grand Final soccer, whatever you want to call it, for, uh, for last year. And, uh, you know, you, you receive the medal and you can wear it. It's got its little uh, ribbon that goes around your neck and, you know, you can proudly display it to uh, the crowd or anyone that's around that day. And then, you know, I don't know what you meant to do with it, but some people put it up and display maybe in their office or somewhere where people could see it. Some people throw it in a drawer and it sort of just collects dust. Uh, some people just throw it out. You, um, you get a medal for coming second as well, runners up, and I've often seen them in the bin as I leave the uh, stadium. Uh, <clears throat> but many of you have probably got medals or ribbons. You remember Ribbons. From school, when you, you have the athletics carnival, and you, you know, first place you get a blue ribbon, and second place you get a red one, and third place you get a green. And uh, you know, you, you might have some of them lying around, or you might remember them. We get you know, awards and certificates. If you remember at school, you've, you've got awards night where there's just a night dedicated to recognizing the achievements of kids at the school, and sometimes they're academic, and sometimes they're sporting, and sometimes they're kind of, you know, for, for drama and music and the arts and those sorts of things. And so, this idea of achievement and recognition um, and, and, and a, part, a little bit of fame, not real fame because it's, you know, it's a school or it's, it's a small sort of crowd or, or, or audience that's really recognizing this, but this starts really early on in our life. Um, because pretty much everyone has been exposed to an environment pretty early on where there is something you're meant to do, and if you achieve it well to a certain level, you will get recognition and it will come in the form of a medal or a certificate or a plaque or you know, whatever. And this happens a little bit as we get older, um, typically, it's not something that we see a lot of in, um, as adults, although we still have things like that, for people that do extraordinary things. um, Typically, we try to show a little bit of our achievement, maybe in some of our possessions and and those sorts of things. But it really starts at a young age that there, there is this idea that if you achieve something, you will get recognized for it and it will kind of help you find your place in the the world that you live in, whether that's a, a school or a workplace or or a church um, or the community that you're kind of around a lot of these things will kind of help you establish where you kind of sit in the in the in the group. Um, most of it's unsaid, but everyone kind of knows and is constantly filtering. Where where do I fit and sit? On this this level and pendulum of kind of my identity and what i 'm worth and my achievements and how do people view me and and am I in a safe and secure kind of spot right, I hope this is resonating with some of you, most of it is unspoken right it 's it's, it's seen and very up the front when we 're younger in schools and th- those sorts of things, but most of it now is a, is jostling uh just just kind of behind the scenes and so we buy expensive cars or we have expensive clothes or we have you know nice houses or you know those are kind of some of the medals and trophies and things that we collect now in in order to kind of recognize and show people our achievements i'm not saying we do that for every time we buy a new car that's what the heart behind it is but sometimes it is. And the problem with that is when you put your identity in that, and that's what it's based on is your achievement, is that can go really well for a season or two, but but eventually at some stage you're going to fall short, right? And we have all experienced failure, whether it's at school, or it's at university, or in the workplace, or in the church, or in your community, or what, whatever it is. We've all failed in various ways at various times. And if your identity is... Is attached to achievement, then so goes your identity with your actions. And likewise, if if you do well for a, for a season or for a moment, you, you do actually feel quite good about yourself, and you kind of look around, and you're like, I'm do, I'm doing pretty well, like this. And you wouldn't say it, like you wouldn't tell people. Well, some people do, and you just you know, those are the people who are like, geez, they're so vain and all those sorts of things, but. You, you kind of what, that, that is often how we look for our identity, is we kind of look to the left, that's the right, we look to the left <laughs> and look to the right, and you look at kind of how is everybody else going, how am I going, am I keeping up with so-and-so, um, how's our financial position, what are the assets that we've got, um, you know, what are the skills and abilities that I've been able to uh, develop are they recognized? Th- these sorts of things, right? And hopefully you can see some of that in, in maybe your own life and in, in others' lives and just in the world that we live in, right? We're, we're just a society that wants to achieve, wants to see the recognition for that achievement and that's kind of how we figure out our place uh, in, in society. And um, when we attach our identity to it, it just it's a really unstable place, and thing to attach our identity to. And some of you have recognized that when things come crashing down um, or when somebody actually calls out some of your failures um, and all of a sudden you have this um, kind of worldview flipped upside down and and you start saying things like, I don't, I don't know who I am anymore. Uh, this can happen if you even change jobs sometimes, or you change something that you've put a lot of your identity into. Um, you see this with athletes who have spent, you know, pretty much their whole life getting good at a discipline or a sport, and they train for it every day, and they, you know, what, what they eat is all according to getting better at this sport or performance or whatever it is, and then they get to a certain age and they retire, right? And it's normally fairly young because you know, you, you can't keep doing that kind of activity f- at a high level for a long period of time. And so they, you know, retire in their early 30s or something like that, and then all of a sudden they have this identity crisis because all of their identity and worth and what they've always done has, has been part of this achievement and performance kind of lifestyle, and they retire, and then they think, what do I do now? Who, who am I anymore? You know, I, I used to do all these things and I get recognition and I knew what my purpose was and that's gone now. And they just kind of can really like f- fall off um, the rails and you see it all the time. And then sometimes they're like, okay, I'm making a comeback, right? And you see people retire from a sport and, and a, a year later, they're like, no, I'm coming back. Um, and some of that is because they just don't know how to live, outside of the identity that they found and the purpose that they found in the achievements that they had. Uh, We we can do this in our spiritual life. And um, I wonder if you ever feel like that before the Lord, where you feel like you have to achieve in order to uh, approach Him, to talk to Him, to be... Um, kind of seen as worthy before Him. And all of us on paper and and the surface, people, no, 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 I don't feel like that. But when you look at the way that you operate and what you're operating from in your identity, often, actually, we do. When we stop and think, and and we can actually think, um, I haven't been measuring up lately in my spiritual life, whether that's, I haven't read, read the Bible enough, I haven't felt like I've prayed enough, I've, I haven't felt like I've kind of been living out the, the standards or whatever it is that you think a Christian is. Um, and so, I don't know if I can even really talk to the Lord at the moment. Praying feels like, oh, uh, we haven't had much to do with each other recently. And we can actually kind of get into this identity crisis where everything that we do if it's not achieving in the sense of what we we think it should, then we can actually act out of that and distance ourselves from the Lord. And sometimes we say, you know, I haven't got to earn my way into good graces. I got to clean myself up a little bit before I come to Him. And we do it a lot. And we can even just avoid the Lord because of lack of doing good or the right things or achievement, right? This is just in us. And um, we're going to go through a parable today where a man comes before Jesus and wants his achievements to stack up before him. And he wants Jesus to show him and confirm to him that his achievements will earn him eternal life, right? Which basically is, he wants to be told, you are righteous in of your own abilities, And he's going to come to Jesus and kind of have a back and forth with him about that. This is in Luke chapter 10 verse 25. And uh, a man really wants to just earn eternal life off his own bat and he finds a saviour in front of him standing there that he deems not actually any use to him. We're looking at the parable of the Good Samaritan. And many of you have heard this parable. It's one of the most famous, well-known parables. In fact, the, the, the word Samaritan is still used in today's context as somebody who does good, right? If you if you were called a Samaritan or a good Samaritan, you would think that would be a good thing. That's not the case when we get to the story at the time, but it has turned into a compliment because of this parable. And many of you have heard this and you've walked away saying um, or being told, right, I need to do good things to my neighbor, right? I need to love my neighbor the way that the Samaritan loved this man. And we kind of load up on ourselves some uh, some uh, burdens and things that we aren't able to actually carry. And so, I'm going to take a bit of a different stance on what I think the text shows us about this parable. So, if you think you've heard this before and you know where this is going, just buckle up because we're not probably going where you might have gone before. And I'm going to let you decide whether you think this is correct based on the text right? And so, I'm going to show you in the text, based on the context, why I think this is what the parable teaches, and you can decide at the end. And, uh, you know, maybe this will be my last sermon here at Restoration Church, and that's fine, you know? Doug can come up if he wants to carry it, and um, I'll drink coffee by myself. <clears throat> So, whenever we're doing parables, I said this last week, you've got to look at the context. If you take it out of the context where it's found in the book that it's recorded, you'll miss the meaning. So, the context for this parable, what sets it up to unlock the meaning is four verses before this exchange begins, right? We're in Luke 10, it starts in verse 25, but I want to go back four verses to verse 21 to something Jesus says, because this is going to show you what the parable is all about. Verse 21 Chapter 10 of Luke says this, At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to the little children. Talking about the gospel, right? The disciples had just gone off and done some ministry and they'd they'd really seen that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, exactly who He'd preached to be, right? And Jesus says... I thank You, Lord, that You have revealed this to little children, but not to the learned and the wise. And the learned and the wise in the, in the book of Luke really are the Jewish religious leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes. And so, what we're going to see is that the learned and the wise have been darkened to the things of God, because they were darkened and they rejected Jesus, the Messiah, And Paul says this, actually, in 2 Corinthians 3, where he says, whenever they uh, open the book of Moses, talking about the Jewish leaders, um, it says there's a veil over their heart. Right? There's a veil over their heart. They have been darkened. And then he says, whenever a person turns to the Lord, though the veil has been lifted and taken away. And Paul's basically saying that, you know, they knew their Old Testament... They knew it better than, than, than any of us, right? But there was a veil that, that lay over them and they were darkened to the Old Testament coming to fulfillment in a person of Jesus. Because if you don't understand Christ and the gospel, you can never fully understand what the Old Testament teaches and points to ultimately, you know, you got the law, you got the covenants, you got the prophets. And Jesus said, all of these things point to me. And the Jewish leaders never got that. Right? And so Jesus says in his prayer, I thank you, Lord, that you've revealed it to little children, but not to the learned and the wise. Now, little children in that society, they were seen as not important, they didn't have any power, they had little to no education, they had no rights, they were seen as unimportant, they were overlooked, and often even just despised, seen as, you know, kind of, the, they, they should be off to the side so that important things can take place and they don't distract us, right? And Jesus says that you've, re- you've revealed the gospel to these kinds of people. And this is going to set up our parable because in it, Jesus is going to be tested by one of the learned and the wise. It's a lawyer. A lawyer is going to come to Jesus and ask him some questions. And in response he's going to tell the parable of the good samaritan. In the good samaritan there's a there's a priest and there's a levite, right? And these are again the learned and the wise. And again they don't understand what it's all about. Three examples of the learned and the wise and they all miss it. They don't grasp the Old Testament and its intent and how it's fulfilled in Jesus. And they're darkened because they're in opposition to Jesus. Instead, the parable that Jesus tells is an example of righteousness and sacrificial mercy. And it's not going to be found in the priest. And it's not going to be found in the Levite. And ultimately, it's not going to be found in the lawyer. It's going to be found in one that's a little child, an infant, an outcast, the unimportant, the overlooked, the despised. So, let's look at the parable, verse 25, it says, On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? An expert in the law, he was exactly that. He was an expert in Old Testament Mosaic law. And he knew it back to front. He would have memorized the whole law. In fact, when the Sanhedrin, which was one of the, uh, the councils of, the, of the, uh, the, the religious leaders, the ones that actually condemned Jesus to death, when the Sanhedrin had a question about the law and how to interpret it and what to do, they would go to the experts in the law, the lawyers, right? They were the ones who they would turn to to ask some questions. And so they would bring these guys in. And so this is the guy that's standing before Jesus. He's a lawyer, he's an expert in the law. We've got a a professor in Mosaic law, PhD. And uh, he sees this young tradesman turned rabbi from Galilee teaching. And he says, You know what? I'm going to put him through his paces. He wants to put him to the test. And his bias is against Jesus from the beginning. The text tells us he wants to test him. So he asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus sort of replies with a question. What, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And the, the lawyer, as a good lawyer would do in Mosaic law, goes straight to the law. He quotes two Old Testament verses, Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, and then he quotes Leviticus 19.18. But Deuteronomy is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind. And then Leviticus is, love your neighbor as yourself. And this is a good answer. Like even, even at one stage, Jesus himself, when somebody asks, how do you summarize the law and the prophets? He, he says, says these two verses as well. He says, everything else basically hangs off these two commandments. And so, the lawyer is smart. He knows his content. And I give him props for that. He was zealous for it and he knew it. And Jesus replies, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. That is also a quote out of the Old Testament in Leviticus 18. And uh, if you step back and you look at the the law itself and just the way that it's set up, right? The law is really, it starts in Exodus and there's a giving of the law and the requirements of what uh, God required the the Israelites to follow. And it was really the character of God on display in a people in the world. And uh, he said, you're going to represent me and if you're going to represent me, this is how you're going to treat one another, this is how you're going to treat other nations, this is how you're going to relate to me, right? And that's in Exodus. Exodus. Well, if you know your Old Testament, the next book is Leviticus, right? And Leviticus is all full of the sacrificial system and instructions, right? So, even with the way that the law is written in the Old Testament, there's an understanding that you will not be able to completely follow and and perfectly obey the law because there's going to be a sacrificial system for when you get it wrong right? If they were able to perfectly obey it all the time, they wouldn't need the sacrificial system for when they fell short and somebody else to take their place. And yet, we have the book of Leviticus, right? And so, even the way that the law is given, there is structure to it that shows us, actually, you're going to fall short. And so, Jesus replies, "'You you are correct,' And if you do this, you will live. If you were to do those two commandments perfectly, you will live. You would have eternal life. You would you would be righteous. You would not come under condemnation. But you would have to do it perfectly. All the time. In every instance, in thought and deed. Now stop there for a second. what should have been the lawyer's response to this? Knowing how high that bar was to be able to carry out the character of God, what should have his response been to what Jesus has just said? I mean, he should have really just then and there admitted, you know what, I cannot live up to that. Like, I've done my best but I still fall short and he should have thrown himself to the mercy of God, to say, is there anything you can offer me to help? That should have been his response, but that's not what he does. Verse 29, but he wanted to justify himself. All right. this tells us the motivation behind the next question. What is he wanting to do? He's wanting to prove that he is righteous based on his own achievement. He's wanting to justify himself. And then he asks the question, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? You see, there's, one, there's two ways you can kind of um, do this. You can, you can see that the law is, uh, I, that he would not be able to follow it completely and to be able to be perfect in that, right? And he could admit that, or he can narrow the law to something that he would be able to achieve, right? And so, by asking, who is my neighbor? He's trying to get a target as to, who do I have to do these actions towards? And so, now we're going to have this idea that there's neighbors and there's non-neighbors, right? And if he can love the neighbor and not have to worry or be concerned about the other person, maybe he can actually achieve what the law requires. But that is not what the law actually said. I mean, the, the word neighbor there could, is, is anyone that's nearby. And so, that could be a variety of people at all different times and, and places. But he is desiring to lower the bar so that he might be able to achieve it by saying, okay, who is, who's the target here? who is the neighbor, so that I might be able to fulfill this? Who are the ones that I have to act this way towards? Surely, it's my fellow Jews, right? And so, Jesus tells him the parable of the Good Samaritan. Verse 30, in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, where he attacked, He was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes beat him, went away, leaving him half dead. Now, I don't, we don't know if this is a true story. It's probably not, but it's based on a true um, a place, right? There is, a, there is a road that goes from Jerusalem down to Jer- Jericho. Um, it's quite a steep descent. It's about 27 kilometers long, and you drop about a kilometer in altitude by the time you get there. And everyone would have known this road. It was known to be treacherous. There was often... Um, people who were ready to attack, and uh, this man is is jumped by some robbers. They strip him, they beat him, they leave him half dead by the road. And um, they in those days, he, he, there's no phones, right? So he can't call for help. Um, I don't think they developed carrier pigeons by then either. So he can't just you know let one of them out to go get help. He is completely reliant on somebody else coming along and seeing him and helping him, right? This man is dead unless somebody else comes along that road. And uh, if you were to make a short list of people you would want to come along that road, right? Now, maybe today you're like, okay, I want a nurse or a doctor or, you know, somebody that's just a nice guy. I want them to come along the road first. Um, at the top of the list, you're probably going to put in those days a priest. Right? That's like okay, number one guy. He serves in the temple. He offers the, sacri- the sacrifices. He's close to the holy of holies. He's around uh, people who are who are known to be God's people. Um, he understands the sacrificial system that we fall short and that we can, you know, be, uh, be, we, we can have a substitute in an animal. Like surely a priest would come by and he, and he would understand the idea of sacrificial mercy and he would help the man. What's well, this guy's lucky day. A priest comes by and you think, well, here we go. Surely this man will stop. But the text tells us the priest happened to be going down the same road. When he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Now, it's likely, we can't say for sure, but this priest was probably, he's coming from Jerusalem down to Jericho, he probably lived in Jericho, and he'd finished some priestly duties at Jerusalem, and he's heading back home. Maybe he's had a long week. And one of the, uh, the, the laws in the Old Testament was, well, if you touch a dead body, you are unclean, and you're going to have to go through a ceremony to become clean, and you have to spend the day outside of the camp, right? And so this priest, maybe, I don't know, we can't be sure, comes down, sees it, and he goes, you know what, if I help this guy, it's probably just my luck that he'll die in my arms, and I'll go home, and I'll be unclean. I can't even enter my own house for a day. I'm going to have to do the ceremonial cleansing and all those sorts of things. I don't know if that's true, but potentially. It was just too much bother for him, and so he passes by on the other side. Who's next? Verse 32, a Levite. When he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side, a Levite was basically assistant to the priests in, uh, in the temple and would fulfill a bunch of the temple duties. They wouldn't actually make the sacrifices, but they were around and would help. And they were, God said that the Levites would do this, right? So, they knew the sacrificial system. They knew the Old Testament. Uh, they they understood this idea, well, we're meant to understand the idea of substitutionary, sacrificial mercy and atonement. They wore all white when they got around, so they were, they were recognisable. And you would think, okay, this guy, he, surely he will stop as well, but no, he just passes by on the other side. Now, you know where this goes, but the next guy that comes along in verse 33 says... Um, he's a Samaritan. Well, who's a Samaritan? He's despised by the Jews. The the Samaritans and the Jews, they did not get along because uh, the Samaritans were known as half-breeds, Was what they were kind of called. In um, in 722, the northern kingdom of Israel got um, taken over by the Assyrians. And a bunch of the Israelites got dragged off into captivity, into Assyria, and they intermingled and bred with the Assyrians, right? And so when they come back to the land, they've got half Jew, half uh, half Assyrian blood kind of going on in their family lines. And so the southern kingdom of Israel despised them and kind of said, "Right, we will distance ourselves from you, you're not actually true Jews anymore and the, the Samaritans hated the Jews because of that as well, and the Samaritans had their own um, temple that they worshipped at, not in Jerusalem, it was at Mount Gerizim. They had their own book, it was the Samaritan Pentateuch, it was just the first five books of the Old Testament and they didn't read anything else, and so there is this rivalry and hatred uh, between the Samaritans and the Jews, even though they had a lot in common, right? And this, you know, it's, it's funny how like often the people who have. The most conflict are the ones that have actually quite a lot in common, but some unique differences as well. So, this is the guy that comes along and sees this Jew half dead on the ground. And and it says this, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. Other translations you might have there, it says that he had compassion on him. The word there for compassion has this physical component to it. It's actually got this this idea that you feel it in your gut. And maybe you've had that um, before where you've heard a story and it's moved you in a way that you actually can feel it physically. Um, sometimes when we watch movies and they, uh, they, they drag us into the emotion of the story and uh, we can have an emotive response to... Um, You know, sometimes it's the really good things, and sometimes it's the the sad parts of movies and stuff like. But you feel it, right? And sometimes it comes out in tears. And but you you feel it moving around inside. That that's what this word um, means. That he had compassion on him. That he felt it deep inside. A deep sense of empathy for this man. And so he acts. Thirty four says he went to him and bandaged his wounds pouring oil, pouring on oil and wine, and the wine would disinfect and the oil would soothe. And it wouldn't be cheap, right? That that would cost him money. And he bandages his wounds. Have you ever wondered where he got those bandages from? People didn't carry our bandages with them on a regular basis. It'd be like us walking around with first aid kits. Like we, we we have them some places, but we don't walk around with them typically, right? So where did he get those bandages from? It's likely, and we can't say for sure, but it's likely that he ripped his own clothes, tore them, so they could bandage this man's wounds. Then he put him on his donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. So he puts his own, on his own mode of transportation. He will now walk, he will get off, his beast and walk this man, take him to the inn, look after him all night long, probably redress his wounds, probably make sure he's got something to eat, care for him as the night goes on. And the next day, verse 35, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, said, look after him and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. He basically hands over the credit card to the innkeeper, just says, use this for anything that this man needs and I'll pay you whatever it doesn't cover when I come back. Now, just think about what this Samaritan has done. He's tended to the man which has taken up his time. He's tore his own clothes. He's used his own oil and wine. It's cost him money. He's given him his donkey, so it's cost him his comfort and transportation. He's gone to the inn and he stayed the night, so it's interrupted his travel plans. And he's given the innkeeper extra money to take care of him. And he leaves him with about three weeks worth of expenses based on the, the currency. And there's about two days worth of working, but he can probably last about three weeks off of everything that he needed because of that money. This Samaritan is an incredible person. Now, back to Jesus and the lawyer. He's told the story. Jesus says, which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the lawyer doesn't even want to take the word Samaritan on his lips. He says, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus said, go and do likewise. Notice, when Jesus asked that question, it's different to the question at the beginning. See, at the beginning, the man asked, who is my neighbour? Who is it that I need to do these things to? At the end, Jesus says, who was a neighbour to the man The lawyer's question asked how to focus uh, on, what do I need to do? It was all about doing. Jesus' question, who was a neighbour to the man, seems to be about who received the mercy. Who was it that showed mercy? It was the Samaritan. The man who was a neighbor was the one who had mercy on the half dead man. So, if the command is to love your neighbor, and the the neighbor is the one that shows mercy, who is it that the lawyer should love? The one who shows mercy. And who is the one that shows mercy in the story? The Good Samaritan. And this is where people kind of pretty much say, now go and love your enemy because the Good Samaritan was the enemy. But that's not the point. The point is the Good Samaritan is the one that shows mercy. So if we follow the law, you're meant to to love the one that shows mercy. Well, who's the one that shows mercy to the lawyer? It's the man standing in front of him that he is trying to best. Jesus Himself. See, who's the Good Samaritan representative of, in the context that we find this story? Are there things that the Good Samaritan does that sound kind of familiar to us? There's a guy half dead, by the side of the road, he's naked, he's dying, he can't help himself. He is totally dependent on somebody else showing mercy upon him. And the priest and the Levite couldn't help. The Old Testament, the law couldn't help us. Paul says that the law is actually meant to be a tutor to Christ himself. And the priest and the Levite are meant to show us that they can't help us, but there was one that came along that could. It shows us that we're unable to fulfill the requirements of perfection in the Old Testament. And the world has left us beat up and dead on the side of the road. And who helped us? Our enemy. The one we called an enemy. The one we would have despised. The Son of God came and helped little children who were stuck in their own mess. What did he do? He saw us. He stopped. He came down. And he took his robes of righteousness and he tore them. And he wrapped us in his righteousness. And he took the cup of wine and he poured it out where his blood healed us of our forgiveness for sins. And the oil of the Spirit he gave to us so that we might have life. And he healed our wounds and gave us his righteousness. And he cared for us back to life. And he made sure that we would have everything we would need to go on from there. And he made a down payment so that if anything came up, that it would be covered as well. If there was any area that we fell short, any failures that we repeated, any sins that we returned to, any achievements we didn't quite make, that would be paid for too it would be covered. Everything was covered until he would then come back. All this was done by Christ for us. And what did the half-dead Jew by the side of the road have to do in all of this? He just had to receive it. He just had to be on the end of it and receive it? What is Christ calling the lawyer standing in front of Him to do? Who wants to justify Himself, what is He asking Him to do? To humble Himself and receive the mercy of God found in Jesus Christ. But what happens? Ultimately, we don't know, but the man seems to leave with no hint of repentance or understanding or willingness to accept the mercy of Jesus. Exactly what we read in verse 21. The wise and the learned missed it. Two things this parable teaches us. It was more than that, but two things I want to I want to say that'll help land this plane. The parable tells us what love is. Our society, our media, our entertainment sources have no idea what love is anymore. And nowhere in the parable is love actually mentioned. The word love you won't find in the parable, but it's all throughout the parable because it's sacrificial mercy. It's when somebody is willing to give up themselves for the betterment of somebody else. That's what love is. That's what Jesus does for us. Pete mentioned a couple of weeks ago, love is giving up some of your own life so that somebody else might experience life. Christ loves us, and it is demonstrated in the way that He went to the cross and laid Himself down for us. That's the first thing. The second thing, and this is the point of the parable, firstly, the point is not that you're to go out and love everyone as your neighbor in order to inherit eternal life. Uh, that's, that's actually the opposite point that Jesus is making, even though that would be a good thing to do to go love your neighbor. The point is that you can't actually do it to the point that would give you righteousness and eternal life. Our failure in that was always meant to lead us to the one who succeeded, the one who saw us and felt compassion for us deep in His gut, So much so that He was willing to die to help us back to safety and security in Him. And He went out of His way to secure eternal life for us. Should we love our neighbor? Yes, we should. Absolutely, we should. But it is only possible to do that through the ongoing work of Jesus... Who transforms us, who changes us to be more like Him, who was the only one who was actually able to do it the way that it was meant to be done. You see, this is the identity piece where often we try to achieve our way to a certain identity, but Christ gives us a new identity, and out of that, we can operate the way that He does but we have to see Him and His beauty, His magnificence, His promises, what He's done. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, He changes us. It's not that we act now to earn identity. That that earning in order to be Formula doesn't work. No, that never works. Many of us have been on that. You know, we call it a treadmill here because we just keep trying to do things and do things and do things and never seem to get anywhere. Now we get to see what Christ has done for us and identity is no longer on the line in that. This is such a different message to what society has drilled into us over years and years and years. but there is a Savior who looked at you and He felt deep compassion for you. Have you thought about that? I don't know how that sits with you, but sometimes that can feel a little bit uncomfortable for us. But Jesus saw you and there was deep compassion in Him. That moved him to action. That's our Saviour. That's the point of the parable. I've got a confession to make. About a week before the grand final, my son Jack was born. So I didn't play in this game at all. I, uh, I couldn't make it. And so, um, I didn't earn this medal that day at all. Somebody else went out and achieved this for me. And it's the same with my righteousness. I couldn't achieve it. Left up to me, there was no way I would, ever, I would ever stack up before a holy God. But somebody else went out and achieved it for me. And he gave it to me based on his actions and what he did. And I am the beneficiary. And all I had to do was receive the mercy that was offered to me by Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, I shudder to think at what my life would be without your mercy. Where would we be if you didn't see us and have compassion upon us? that You would send Your Son to die for us. We would still be by the side of the road, dying, desperate. So I thank You for Jesus. What a Saviour. There is none like Him, none who could be righteous like Him and none that could offer righteous to us. Help us to know Him. Help us to not get stuck in the cycle of achievement and earning your love, your acceptance, your righteousness, but to know that we received based on the work of Christ, and that cannot be changed. It cannot be taken away. We dare not doubt it. For you love us, you accept us. And for that, we thank you. We do want to love our neighbor, those who are around us, those who we come into contact with, those who we live with, those who sit in the pew next to us. We want to love them, but we need your help. We need you to make us more and more like Jesus, and you've promised to do so, and so we trust in you that you will fulfill your promises, and we thank you that you are restoring us little by little every day by the power of your Holy Spirit. May this word dwell deeply in our hearts that you might change us through our true identity as sons and daughters of you. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.